internal appointments on the VC-backed boards are actually part of the reason the boards have become more diverse. So it's putting internal employees on the board versus finding external people to come on the board. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, I sit down with Melissa Smith, head of specialized industries at Middle Market Banking at JPMorgan Chase. We discuss the innovation economy, her passion for supporting women in business, and how her early life as a ballerina prepared her for a banking career. Melissa, it's great to have you on our Women on the Move podcast. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Look forward to the discussion today. So first off, I will tell the audience that you and I have worked together for many years. We were close colleagues when I was in the commercial bank where you are right now. So it is just really nice to be back talking with you and to catch up since we've missed each other for a few years now. Thank you. And it's great to see you. And we miss you here in the commercial bank. So love to get started with some information on you. Tell us a little bit about your background, you know, your career and your personal life. I grew up in a smaller town in Virginia, Fredericksburg, but I think probably the most notable thing about my background that's probably a little bit different from many people is that I really spent my childhood and sort of early teens training as a classical ballet dancer. So I really sort of grew up the whole time studying ballet very seriously. I started taking ballet at the age of four and then starting in probably about seventh grade, my mom started driving me 120 miles every day to Washington, D.C. to train because that was the best school to go to to get professional training. So from kind of early on, I had this dichotomy separation between, you know, my going to school life and kind of childhood and then all this time that I spent in in D.C. and in the city and all my friends there. I went to school early every day. I would have one teacher that would come in and teach a class just for me kind of before school started so that I could leave school at noon. It was just a very rigorous schedule, I would say. Ultimately, I graduated from high school a year early because the commute got, (laughs) got so bad and so that I could dance professionally for three years. So I did that. And then ultimately, I stopped dancing in order to go to college full time. I didn't want to completely give up my education. I guess I mentioned dancing specifically because it is such a part of sort of who I am and how I grew up. And it's certainly a lot of the lessons that it taught me, I think, have really carried on into my educational career and then obviously my work career. Certainly, it taught me great discipline and sacrifice and just overall kind of perseverance because you spend a lot of time, hours and hours and hours per day, sort of staring in the mirror, trying to attain this kind of perfect ideal that no matter how talented you are, you'll never attain. It really creates great determination, I think, for someone that studies it that seriously. That is amazing. And you're right. I do not know really any other bankers who've been professional ballerinas. Given that you spent so much time doing ballet, how did you make the transition out of that into whether you thought it was going to be a business career early or let's just say to a non-ballet life? What was that transition like for you? Sure. So first, I would say it was certainly a very difficult decision, giving up something that you love and and obviously have a passion for. But at the same time, as I mentioned, I didn't want to fully give up my education, which you basically have to do, because that's the best time of your career as a dancer is those earlier years in your 20s. Difficult decision to make the transition, ultimately chose to go to college, went to American University full time, and then went straight through actually from undergrad to grad school to University of Chicago, where I actually started a master's in public policy, which is also probably a little bit different than your traditional banking background. I love it. You have so many interesting roads, but it led you to J.P. Morgan Chase, and you've now been with a bank in various capacities for more than 20 years. So that is unbelievable right there. Tell us about what your time with the company has been like and the different roles that you've had. 
So I started at J.P. Morgan in public finance as a first-year associate right after grad school. And sort of going back to the school background, I had done this master's in public policy because it was University of Chicago. It was very heavily economics and statistics focused, so heavy quant background. So for me, the public finance role was a great way to kind of leverage the quantitative skills I had acquired at school with my interest in the public sector. So I started at J.P. Morgan in the associate program there. I was there in that group for about two and a half years. And then I moved into our debt capital markets team where I really spent the majority of my time in the investment bank within the DCM group. I have to say, I really, I loved the environment in DCM, mainly because we sat on the trading floor and I just loved the pace and the energy level and the phones ringing all the time and the noise. It was just a very exciting environment to be in, I think, particularly sort of early on in your career. Because of that environment, the ability to learn so quickly, because you're literally sitting next to, you know, in that open trading floor, the person that you work for, the managing director. And so you can listen in on all their client calls. And I just think it accelerates your learning curve as you're hearing them deal with difficult client situations, deals they're working on, et cetera. So really, really appreciated that time. But the other interesting thing about the trading floor is that it tends to still be very dominated by men. And so imagine this football field size trading floor and it's basically all men. But I felt very lucky being in the DCM team that at the time was led by a woman. She was very intentional in thinking about recruiting and attracting talent into that team. And so we had a fairly diverse, whether from a female or sort of ethnic or gender perspective, it was a very diverse team. So we were sort of this little pocket of diversity within that large trading floor, which I really enjoyed. Overall, in the investment bank for about 16 years, ultimately moved into the commercial bank. Today, I lead our industry coverage teams within our middle market business in the commercial bank. So think about that as smaller size companies. I have 13 different industry teams everywhere from, or anywhere I should say, from technology to disruptive commerce, life sciences, healthcare services, beverage, green economy, many more industries, which is really exciting because every day is a little bit different depending on what industry we're focused on. Yes. So we have to just recap here from ballerina to specialized industries across the board. I mean, I love the real diversity of that and where you've taken things. So one of the things you're focused on now is really building an ecosystem around the innovation economy. Can you explain what that is and why that's important? The best way I would describe the innovation economy is high growth, disruptive companies across a variety of industries. Primarily, I would say technology, consumer retail, healthcare, payments. But if you just think about all of the disruption that has happened in our lives just over the last few years and or just during COVID, during the pandemic, so many of these companies have changed how we live and how we work. So we exercise differently, right? We don't necessarily need to go to the gym. You can do it through an app and there's an online community. We get food delivered differently. We watch TV differently, right? We don't have to watch network television. We can go to a streaming service that also creates content. So those are all examples of disruptors in their traditional industries. And so we think about the innovation economy as obviously those companies, but not just the companies themselves, but also the venture capital firms that are providing capital and investing in those companies, the founders of the companies themselves. And so that all creates this overall ecosystem around what is a very big percent of the U.S. economy today and obviously continuing to grow. Our goal as a business within my world, within the innovation economy business, is to really help those companies grow and scale over time. I think, and, and we can talk about it some more, but particularly at very early stages, they face some unique challenges given the incredibly high rate of growth that they're experiencing as they sort of continue to evolve. 
And as part of that ecosystem, you'll work with venture capitalists and others who might have relationships with these companies that we do as well. What is that like too? Has that changed over the years? You know, when you think about your career when you might've had a relationship with a client and maybe it was just JP Morgan and that client. Now you're thinking about that client's other partners as well. Has that changed? And what does that look like? Yes, I definitely think there has over time been this growing need to serve not just the companies themselves, but the investors, the founders from a personal perspective, the venture capital partners. So I think making sure that we as a firm have the solutions that meet each of those individuals' needs, companies or individuals, is super important. And that's what we ultimately think that JP Morgan can offer in the innovation economy is being the only firm that can actually meet the disparate needs of all of those players, if you will, within the ecosystem. So let's talk about some of the challenges that startups may face, particularly women founders. What do you see out there that seems to be common to founders as they're getting started, whether that's financial or any other challenges? Sure. So I would say the most important thing for an early stage company or really a startup in particular is finding the capital that they need to grow their business, right? And these are entrepreneurs. They want to spend time focused on what the mission of the business is, not finding money to propel that growth. I would say while all the data shows that progress has been made, we continue to see that female and diverse founders receive a much smaller percentage of venture dollars going into these companies than companies founded by some of their male counterparts. We recently sponsored a pitch book report that was titled All In that sort of looked at sort of the status and progress of women in the venture capital ecosystem or female founded companies in particular. As of the end of Q3 2021, female founded companies saw about 17.5% of all US VC deal activity. Now, back in 2011, that number was below 10%. So again, progress has been made, but obviously females represent more than 17.5% of the total US population, in fact, close to 50% or not slightly greater. We want to continue to help propel that progress forward. And I think also not just the actual dollar amount going into these companies, but oftentimes both female and, and diverse founders, they just don't necessarily have the same network that's some of their peers do. And so they might not have gone to grad school with someone who's now a VC partner. I mean, that is a bit of a sweeping generalization, but we do find that they don't necessarily have to have the same networks. And thus it is harder to raise capital for many of these companies. And the other thing I would point out is particularly for some of those companies that also have a focus or a product that's serving a diverse population, whether that be female clothing line or whatever the case may be, they might not attract as much interest from, again, this sort of historically predominantly male VC world that might not understand the target population, target market that that company is going after. And when you think about the ecosystem you're trying to build, how do you help founders expand their networks and bring them other resources that they need? Well, first, I would just say our overall objective is to not only be the leading bank in the innovation economy, but in particular to be the leading bank for female and diverse founders. So we have built a dedicated team of individuals that are focused on high growth companies with subsector expertise in tailored product offerings, again, to meet some of the challenges of these very fast growing companies. I think most importantly, though, we don't just want to be there for them from a, I'll call it more traditional banking perspective, but we want to help do anything we can to help their businesses grow. And really, I, I would characterize that as meeting some of their beyond banking needs. So 
That's helping them with customer acquisition strategies, providing connectivity to potential customers, to vendors, suppliers, to investors, making sure that they have access to some of the resources and internal expertise that we would have as a firm. So if they're a consumer retail type business that actually has storefront locations, right? We have storefronts too. It's our branches, right? How do we think about sort of our branch and strategy from a real estate location perspective? How do we as a firm think about employee compensation? How do we as a firm think about giving back to our community? So there's a lot of other resources as they're building a business that we think that we can provide. Ultimately, we really just want to be an extension of their teams, right? Startups, earlier stage companies, by definition, don't have a ton of employees and don't have a lot of resources overall. And so to the extent that we can be an extension of that team, we're happy to do that. But I would say just overall, we're very proud of the progress that we've made in supporting female and diverse-owned businesses. A significant portion of our early stage client base today is actually comprised of companies led by female founders, which is super exciting. One of the clients that I, I would point out is a company called Rowan, which was founded a few years ago by Louise Schneider. And Louise was at the time looking for options to go get her young daughter's ears pierced. And at the time, there were limited options, I would say, in terms of places to go. And she really wanted something, the option was really the local mall, and she really wanted something that would be a little bit more celebratory in terms of an event in her daughter's life. So she started this company, Rowan, where they've really reimagined ear piercing, right? And they've created an experience that's both safe and celebratory. It's the only company that's working with licensed nurses for piercing ears. They also offer at-home services. And so we were able to provide them with a loan and financing after their first Series A raise to help extend their runway, help manage their cash as they continue to grow and expand. When I think about the work we've done together on coaching women and their businesses, that has been one of the most inspiring things to me. So through the Commercial Bank and your team, we've done a lot of work with mentoring businesses who have come through the door with us, working with outside partners to mentor businesses. And that took the form of operational guidance, marketing. We've talked about pitching, putting together their pitch presentations. And so you can really see how this pays off in terms of readiness across the board in so many ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's also talk about helping companies think through diversity from the beginning. So as companies are starting up and they're thinking about their own practices with diversity and inclusion, how can we help them there? Just back to providing some advice and guidance is sharing with them the best practices that we've seen as they thought about building and incorporating policies for their own internal teams around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think certainly for those companies helping them think through and providing some connectivity to potential talent as they think about the teams they're hiring and making sure they're diverse. But I think super importantly is helping them think through board development. We all know that a board serves a very important governance function for a company, but particularly for earlier stage companies, they're your advisors and mentors in a way. And they're also an important avenue for you to leverage from a networking perspective, right? They're going to have a broader network than the founder, or they'll obviously complement the network that the founder may have. And so having the most diverse group of people on that board is just critical, right? And we've all seen lots of data that shows how, particularly for public companies where it's easier to track performance, right? How those companies outperform companies that have both diverse employees and diverse founders. 
And I think in particular, I would point to a study that we recently did in partnership with PitchBook called the Board Diversity Study that specifically looked at female representation on venture-backed, meaning earlier stage company, private company boards. So if you look back, just to give you some stats, because it's good to put it in some context, back in 2015, approximately 23% of public company boards had female representation, and that is now around 44%. If you look at VC-backed companies in the same time frame, that number in terms of female representation went from 9, 9.9, 10% to 21.7%. So again, we're making progress in both areas, but VC-backed companies are still lagging in terms of female representation on their boards versus public companies. What's even more interesting is that in closer sort of inspection of that data, internal appointments on the VC-backed boards are actually part of the reason the boards have become more diverse. So it's putting internal employees on the board versus finding external people to come on the board. So that doesn't clearly provide the same level of governance bring the fresh perspective and additional networks, right, that an external independent director can provide. So we think that's an important component of thinking through one's board composition and, and one of the things that we're certainly spending some time talking to companies about. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about because it really shows you the power of networking and maybe why those VC-backed companies have fewer women because their networks are largely men. But also it shows you on the public company side how all of the laws and kind of mandates around public boards are really helping change that side of the world. Whatever you think of quotas, it obviously is making a difference in what we see, as well as probably just the competitive landscape. Absolutely. And I think those numbers were specific to the U.S. Obviously, there's been even more mandates and quotas on the European company side, as an example, which we've seen that drive some progress across Europe in particular. So let's go back to your career, because I'd love to talk with you more about lessons learned along the way and how you drive inclusive environments at work. Obviously, from your background, you clearly value different perspectives and different experiences as you've lived so many of them. One other thing you've done is spend time living overseas and working in another market. And I would love for you to tell us about that experience and how that really shaped your career and perspectives. So one of the things that I really enjoy about working at a large company like J.P. Morgan is the ability to do multiple different things over the course of your career. And that includes spending time in a different geography in a different country. So I spent three years in London. I was asked to move to London to lead our European debt capital markets team. And that was my first experience managing a larger team. And one of the things that was most exciting about it was I was managing a larger team comprised of a lot of different individuals from very different cultures. So back to my trading floor example, we were sitting on the trading floor there and I had my UK team and my German team and my French team and my Italian team. Obviously, they're organized that way because clients and thus their bankers need to speak the language of the client that they're covering. So it was really a fun environment because I was sitting there and hearing all of these different languages being spoken all day. I kept thinking I was going to pick up a bunch of new languages by osmosis, but that didn't really happen. I tried. But the thing that I really appreciated and really learned while I was there was just how to better adapt my style and myself as a leader because I had so many different individuals, again, from, from very different backgrounds and cultures. And I think before spending that time in London, 
at least from an internal perspective, I probably always communicated things kind of the same way, sort of the way you deliver the message, right? And the way you just communicate overall. And I think kind of had to test and learn a little bit that the way I spoke to one group may need to change a little bit to just kind of get the message across and, and get the point across. So really being aware of, again, how I was communicating, listening a little bit more, and really just learning to adapt my style where needed was definitely an invaluable lesson for me as a leader and as a manager. And the other thing that was really interesting about being there is coming from the U.S., at least having worked at J.P. Morgan for many, many years in the U.S. before I went there, we're basically number one in every product offering in the U.S., investment banking or in the different, whether that be debt, equity, M&A, et cetera. Well, in Europe, it's not our home market. We're not necessarily number one. And by the way, there's very different competitive market in France in terms of the competitors that the banks you're actually competing against versus Italy versus Germany versus the UK, et cetera. So you really have to have a little bit of a different hustle because the competitive dynamics are so different. And again, I think that's really a valuable experience because you have to think about how you approach winning business, about how you approach clients differently, which I think is an important skill set to have overall. And as a manager then of all those different teams, would you say you were more reliant on your own teams to bring you that competitive intelligence in the market and to tell you what was happening on the ground than you might have in the U.S.? Absolutely. I remember first moving there and just having a hard time keeping up with the companies that were doing the deals. Because in the U.S., if you see a deal flash on your screen from Walmart or Amazon, I mean, these are probably poor examples because those are very large companies, but you know exactly what those companies are. And so all of a sudden there would be this German company whose name I didn't recognize that flashed up on the screen, just not knowing the client bases as well as I did in the U.S. was sort of something that I needed to get used to. And then the other thing, and one has to learn how to embrace being uncomfortable, just being in client meetings and not if clearly everybody spoke English and they would revert to English, but one, they would revert to English because I was there. And then if they were exchanging pleasantries in the beginning of the meeting with, again, the banker covering them in whatever language, in Italian or whatever the case may be, I could pick up a little bit, but just just sort of sitting there feeling like the uneducated person that doesn't speak five languages. So that was definitely something that I had to get used to. And I'm going to continue to work on my language skills because that is a great regret of mine that I don't speak more languages. Same here. I know. I really wish I did too. The European model is so great for that. Totally. You've attributed a lot of your professional growth and success to many female managers that you've had. And you've talked about one when you were in debt capital markets. Can you highlight some of those experiences? You know, Is there one who really stood out to you? And if so, what did they impart to you in terms of advice for your career that you think is really helpful? So I think I've had the benefit of having both mentors and sponsors, and we can talk a little bit about the difference there. As you mentioned, the woman who ran debt capital markets at the time, she was obviously my boss, but sort of just became a mentor and, and over time just a, a close friend of mine. But I think it wasn't just necessarily pure advice that she gave, but it was also just watching some of the experiences that she had and challenges that she faced. She was obviously senior within the organization and particularly me watching that when I was more junior. And just some of the common examples where she did have a very direct style and sometimes that was viewed very negatively by some of her colleagues or people that she ultimately worked for. But that same trait might be viewed very positively if it was in, in a male colleague. And so just kind of watching that and seeing again back to how she had to adapt her style in certain situations was very telling for me. And then I think the other thing that was very helpful 
overall, just in various mentors, was having them come to you and be really honest with feedback. And I think sometimes, hopefully, we're all working for a manager that is giving us constructive feedback on a regular basis. Sometimes we don't want to hear it. Sometimes they're telling it to us and we're not listening. The most important thing a mentor can do is reinforce that feedback, going to you and saying, tell me what your manager said to you in your review. What are the things you're supposed to work on? Having you repeat that and then them giving you their perception of that or how they see that being relevant to you specifically, just reinforcing the message I think is is super helpful. And then I would just say on the sponsorship side, that to me is much more about helping to make sure you have the visibility and network internally that you need to get a promotion or take the next job or whatever the case may be. So that's also been beneficial to me. We had a very formalized sponsor program when going from ED to MD, right, particularly for our diverse sort of ED population. And my sponsor at the time was head of derivatives who went on to be the, the head of our private bank in the U.S. And she just would sit down with me once a month. Who have you met this month? This is the list of people that you need to go see. I'll provide the introductions if you don't know them. And just being very like prescriptive and taking it as a it's your to-do list. It's a job. It's part of your job. That was really, really helpful to me. I'm so glad you raised the distinction between the mentors and the sponsors and what the sponsors were doing for you. And the fact that it's a two-way street, you were doing things, they were guiding you and it was upon them too to guide you and to help you in any way with introductions or whatever else. So that is really great. And it's something we talk about with many of our employees as well. And we're really trying to get the word out on how they can develop sponsors and that they have agency to really do that themselves. Absolutely. Because I think it doesn't always work if it's in a formal program, if they're assigned to you. Sometimes you have to just naturally seek them out. You might've worked with them on something, go grab a coffee with them, develop that relationship. The other thing that I very much learned during that time in watching these more senior women who were either, again, sort of mentors or sponsors, was what a difference it made and obviously sort of the passion that they had around it. And I just today consider that so much part of my day job. And it's really one of the most rewarding things that any of us can do is to help somebody else sort of give back and help them advance their career. It's nice to see how they evolve and succeed over time. I completely agree. Thank you for doing that to paying forward. So let me go back to ballet in the sense that you have found a way to bring that early passion still into your life now to keep that close. You're a board member of the American Ballet Theater. And so that's awesome that you're still doing that and sort of have that foray into ballet. Tell us about being able to do that and having that as a different part of your life and being able to still stay in that world. Something that I very much enjoyed doing, being on the board of ABT, American Ballet Theater, I think, you know, one, obviously, because I care about the ballet a lot, but two, it really stretches different muscles than I do at work every day, right? So it's obviously a nonprofit organization. We have to think about things like what's the negotiating strategy with the musicians union? How are we thinking about our capital campaign and raising money? It's very different to go raise money from private individuals than it is, you know, raising money for a company. It allows me to learn things and acquire skills that I don't necessarily haven't done on a day-to-day basis at work. We're spending a lot of time thinking about real estate right now. And so I'm learning a lot more about the real estate market. I think it's a great balance to my day-to-day job. I mean, I I think about it as providing work-life balance in a way. While it obviously requires a lot of work on my part, it's a mental change from what I'm thinking about at my job at J.P. Morgan every day and something that I just greatly enjoy. So let me ask you one final question, which is what are you most excited about in 2022, both personally and professionally? 
So on the personal side, I am most excited just to continue the momentum of getting performances back on the stage and seeing live performance. So hopefully we don't see any interruptions in that, but we'll we'll keep our fingers crossed. And on the professional side, I would say it's a several factors that I would point to. One is just I've so enjoyed starting to get people back together in the office and the collaborative environment that that creates. So again, look forward to that continuing throughout this year. Just continuing to build our innovation economy business, all the work that we're doing to support female and diverse founders. I love being able to spend time with these founders and hear them speak about their businesses. They're so incredibly passionate about it, and it just brings a new level of energy and excitement to the teams that are supporting them. So look forward to continuing that. And then finally, I would just say all of the continued work on the diversity, equity, inclusion in front that we're doing both internally as a firm to support our employees as well as externally through various programs and initiatives that we have in in our local communities. So looking forward to all of that. Melissa, I just want to say thank you, not only for being here with us on the podcast, but also for all your support of Women on the Move, as well as our female and diverse founders and our clients and employees. We really appreciate all the work that you do and that your team does. And I really look forward to continuing to partner together. Great to be here. Thank you, Sam, and look forward to working with you in 2022. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Melissa Smith. It was great to speak with a colleague and a good friend. The work she's driving to support female and diverse founders is so necessary. And I enjoyed hearing about the holistic approach that her team takes to support these companies. I also loved that she spoke about the distinction between sponsorship and mentorship and how important these relationships are for your career. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.